Book Three, Chapter Thirteen, of Under the Witch's Moon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Under the Witch's Moon by Nathan Galazier, Book Three, Chapter Thirteen. The Convent in Trastevere. He stared at her speechless, so taken was he with the immensity of the thing she had suggested. Fear, wonder, joy seemed to contend for the mastery. "'Why do you look at me so, Tristan?' she said at last. "'What is it that daunts you?' "'But how is this thing possible?' he stammered, still in a state of bewilderment. "'What difficulty does it present?' she returned. "'The Lord Basil himself has rendered very possible what I suggest.' We may look on him to-morrow as our best friend. "'But Tebaldo knows,' he interposed. "'True. Deem you he will dare to tell the world what he knows? He might be asked to tell how he came by his knowledge, and that might prove a difficult question to answer. Tell me, Tristan,' she continued, "'if he had succeeded in carrying me away, what deem you would have been said to-morrow in Rome when the coffin was found empty?' They would naturally assume that your body had been stolen by some wizard or some daring doctor of anatomy. Ah! And if we were quietly to quit the church and be clear of Rome before morning, would not the same be said? He pondered a while, staggered by the immensity of the risk, when suddenly a memory flashed through his mind that left his limbs numb as if they had been paralyzed by a thunderbolt. It was the night on which the terrible crime at the Lateran was to be committed. Even now it could not be far from the midnight hour. Did he dare, even for the consideration of the greatest happiness which the world and life had to give, to forego his duty towards the Church and the Senator of Rome? Helene noted his hesitancy. "'Why do you waste precious moments, Tristan?' she queried. "'Is it that you do not love me enough?' A negative gesture came in response, and his eyes told her more than words could have expressed. At last he spoke. "'If I hesitate,' he said, trying to avoid the real issue, instead of stating it without circumlocution, "'it is because I would not have you do now of what hereafter you might repent. I would not have you be misled by the impulse of a moment into an act whose consequences must endure while life endures.' "'Is that the reasoning of love?' she said very quietly. "'Is this cold argument, this weighing of issues, consistent with the hot passion you professed so lately?' "'It is,' he replied. "'It is because I love you more than I love myself that I would have you ponder, ere you would venture your life upon a broken raft such as mine. You are still the wife of another.' "'No,' she replied, her eyes preternaturally brilliant in the intensity of her emotion. "'Helene, the wife of Roger de Laval, is dead, as dead to him as if she in reality were bedded in the coffin. Where is he? Where is the man who should have been where you are, Tristan?' I venture to say his grief did not overburden him. He will find ready consolation in the arms of another for the wife who was to him but the plaything of his idle hours. He never loved me. He even threatened to shut me up within convent walls for the rest of my days if I did not return with him, his mistress, his wife but in a name, a thing to submit to his loathsome kisses and caresses, while her soul is another's. He himself and death which perchance he himself decreed, have severed bonds no persuasion would have tempted me to break. Tristan, I am yours. Take me." She held out her beautiful arms. He was in mortal torment. Nevertheless, Helene, to-night of all nights it may not be, 
he stammered. Listen, dearest. Enough. She silenced him as she rose. She swept towards him, and before he knew it, her hands were on his shoulders, her face upturned, her blue eyes holding his own, depriving him of will and resistance. Tristan, she said, and there was an intensity almost fierce in her tones. Moments are fleeting, and you stand there reasoning with me and bidding me weigh what already is weighed for all time. Will you wait until escape is rendered impossible, until we are discovered, before you will decide to save me and to grasp with both hands the happiness that is yours, this happiness that is not twice offered in a lifetime? She was so close to him that he could almost feel the beating of her heart. He was now as wax in her hands. Forgotten were all considerations of rank and station. They were just man and woman, whose fates were linked together irrevocably. Under the sway of an impulse he could not resist, he kissed her upturned face, her lips, her eyes. Then he broke from her clasp, and bracing himself for the task to which they stood committed by that act, he said, the words tumbling from his lips, Helene, we know not who is abroad to-night. We know not what dangers are lurking in the shadows. Tibaldo and his men may even now be scouring the streets of Rome for a fugitive, and once in their power all the saints could not save us from our doom. I know not the object of this plot of which you were the victim, and even the Lord Roger may be but the dupe of another. I will take you to the convent of the Blessed Sisters of Santa Maria in Trastevere, that you may dwell there in safety until I have ascertained that all danger is past. You shall enter, as my sister, trying to escape the attention of an unwelcome suitor. But the thing that chiefly exercises my mind now is how to make our escape unobserved." Helene nodded dreamily. "'I have thought of it already.' "'You have thought of it?' he replied. "'And of what have you thought?' For answer she stepped back a pace and drew the cowl of the monk's habit over her head until her features were lost in the shadows. Her meaning was clear to him at once. With a cry of relief he turned to the drawer whence he had taken the habit in which she was arrayed, and selecting another he hastily donned it above the garments he wore. No sooner was it done than he caught her by the arm. There was no time to be lost. Moments were flying. If he should be too late at the Lateran. "'Come,' he said in an urgent voice. At the first step she stumbled. The habit was so long that it cumbered her feet, but that was a difficulty soon overcome. Without regarding the omen, he cut with his dagger a piece from the skirt, enough to leave her freedom of movement, and this accomplished, they set out. They crossed the church swiftly and silently, then entered the porch, where he left her in order to peer out upon the street. All was quiet. Rome was wrapped in sleep. From the moon he gleaned it wanted less than an hour to midnight. Drawing their cowls about their faces, they abandoned the main streets, Tristan conducting his charge through narrow alleys deserted of the living. These lanes were dark and steep, the moonlight being unable to penetrate the chasms formed between the tall, ill-favored houses. They stumbled frequently, and in some places he carried her almost bodily to avoid the filth of the quarter they were traversing. The night was solemn and beautiful. Myriads of stars paved the deep vault of heaven. The moon, now in her zenith, hung like a silver lamp in the midst of them. A stream of quivering, rosy light, issuing from the north, traversed the sky like the tail of some stupendous comet, sending forth, ever and anon, coruscations 
like flaming meteors. At last they reached the Transtiberine region, and the convent of Santa Maria in Trastevere hove into sight. The range of habitations around were in a ruinous state, and the whole aspect of the region was so dismal as to encourage but few ramblers to venture there after nightfall. Passing through the ill-famed quarter of the Sclavonians, where in after-time one of the blackest crimes in history was committed, Tristan and Helene at last arrived before the gates of the convent. They had spoken but little, dreading even the faintest echo of their footsteps might bring a pursuer on their track. Their summons for admission was, after a considerable wait, answered by the porter of the gate, who, upon seeing two monks, relinquished his station by the wicket, and descended to inquire into their behest. Helene shrank up to Tristan, as the latter stated their purpose, and the old monk, unable to understand the jargon of his belated caller, withdrew, mumbling some equally unintelligible reply. Helene's eyes were those of a frightened deer. "'What will he do, Tristan?' she whispered. "'Oh, Tristan, do not leave me. I feel I shall never see you again. Tristan, my love, take me away. I am afraid.' He held her close to him. "'There is nothing to fear, my Helene. To-morrow night I shall return and place you safely where we may see each other till I have absolved my duties to the senator. Do not fear, sweetheart. Of all the abodes in Rome the sanctity of the convent is inviolate. But I hear steps approaching. Someone is coming. Courage, dearest. Remember how much is at stake." Another moment, and they stood before the abbess of Santa Maria in Trastevere. Summoning all his presence of mind, Tristan told his tale and made his request. Danger lurking in the infatuation of a Roman noble was threatening his sister. She had fled from his innuendos, and begged the convent's asylum for a brief space of time, when he, Tristan, would claim her. He explained Helene's attire, and the abbess, raising the woman's head, looked long and earnestly into her face. What she saw seemed to confirm of the truth of Tristan's speech, and she agreed readily to his request. Tristan kissed Helene on the brow, then after a brief and affectionate farewell, and the assurance that he would return on the following day, he left her in charge of the blessed sisters. With a sob she followed the abbess, and the gates shut behind them. For a moment Tristan felt as if all the world about him was sinking into a dark bottomless pit. Then, suppressing an outcry of anguish, his winged feet bore him across Rome towards the Basilica of St. John in Lateran. End of Book Three Chapter Thirteen